The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, What can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. I'm at that point now in my ministry is uh, looking ahead to the reality that I'll be retiring someday. I come across things and I'm kind of surprised by them. And as we were moving into the uh, main office, uh, Ann Lynch had the uh, record book for the burials out. And I think uh, I was signing some of them. And actually it was with Ann Winslow. We were looking over them. And I, I looked at the pages of people that had been... Uh, buried from this church during the time that I've been here. I was really kind of shocked by it. Well, this weekend, as I was uh, trying to uh, put a sermon together and thinking about some of those things, I also recall the many remembrances that I have heard uh, delivered from that lectern and also from the one in the chapel. And many times it's memories of the amazing things that the person who has died accomplished in their life. But the ones that really stick with us, I think, are those remembrances that talk about who the person was as a human being in relationship with other people, in their work, in their family, among their friends. It was about who they were as a person, because we know that uh, our accomplishments in this life are not remembered very long, in all honesty, but who we are as a person with another human being is remembered. Well, I think the lesson that we have from the gospel today is in part about Jesus asking, who do you say that I am? 
but also about us asking ourselves, who do I think I am? Or maybe better, whose am I? This uh, particular account opens with the disciples on their way to the villages around uh, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is in, is, is in the far north of Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee, uh, near what uh, today is the Syrian border. And Jesus has been teaching and healing and casting out demons. This is the first part of Mark's uh, gospel. And now we're at a hinge point. And from this point on, Jesus is looking toward Jerusalem and the end of his earthly ministry. And this is the first of three times that he will say that he must suffer, die, and then after three days, rise again. So this is an important place in the Gospel of Mark. It really distinguishes between the first half and the last half. Well, as they're going along, Jesus asks the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, probably understood to mean carrying on the tradition of John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, and others say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus probably didn't mind being considered one of the prophets. After all, some of what he did was very, very prophetic. But then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, in his usual style, blurts out, you are the Messiah. And the only thing that we hear from Jesus is, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Jesus then begins to teach them and speak openly. And apparently it was a new teaching. And he starts to talk about how he is going to, uh, has to go to Jerusalem and will suffer, will die, and then after three days will rise from the dead. But the thing that's so interesting about this is this encounter, I think, between Jesus and Peter. Can you imagine a student uh, taking on his or her master or teacher or rabbi and rebuking the rabbi because of what the rabbi had said. Some have uh, speculated that because of the, the Greek that's used, uh, that Peter may have actually thought that Jesus was out of his mind, that he was possessed, and that re the rebuke was for the demon that was within him. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and then turns back to Peter and rebukes Peter. It was a huge confrontation between these two giants who had worked together. It's hard to imagine that happening. Well, Jesus then goes on to offer this new teaching and explaining what he is going to do as Messiah. So Peter got it right. He understood that Jesus was Messiah. But what he missed was what that meant in terms of what the Messiah would do. The hope always was that the Messiah would overturn the occupation by the Romans of Israel. That was their hope. And now for this Messiah to say that he was going to die, that must have been very hard for them to even imagine. So when Jesus said, I must suffer I must die, and then on the third day rise again. I have a feeling that Peter had no idea that he ever said, I will rise again. I think he was so focused on the Messiah suffering and dying. I think it's also important for us to see in this that 
there in this interaction between Peter and Jesus that some of what's going on with Jesus rebuking Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan, is perhaps Jesus as a man thinking how easy it would be to turn back. That temptation to not follow the path that he was on. And the way that the passage is set out, it, it makes one think of Jesus' time in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan and tempted about his identity and about his mission. And then, of course, we know that later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus again, as a man, asks God to relieve him of this obligation to die. And, but he ends the prayer by saying, not my will, but your will. So I think that we see in this Jesus as a man, Jesus as one who knows what lies ahead, would like to turn back, but cannot give in to that temptation. Now, it's easy for us to see in Peter someone who has perhaps a misguided view of what it is for him to be Messiah. But perhaps we are a bit like Peter. We want a God who will heal us when we're sick, who will protect us when bad things happen to us, who will help us win football games and even be victorious in war. We want a God who, who will uh, protect us from financial ruin or even better, make us rich. We certainly believe in the power of prayer and we certainly believe in the power of God to make human beings whole. That is part of what we do uh, all through our lives, I think, as faithful Christians. We turn to God in prayer. Sometimes those prayers are not answered in the way that we would like to have them answered. And the other thing that I think is such a reality in our lives is that many times where we meet God are in those moments when we are the most vulnerable, when we see very clearly that our self-sufficiency is not enough, when we realize that we don't have everything necessary to go on. And it's in those moments that we are sustained by the love of God that sees us through. I think there's another thing that's very interesting in this passage. By the way, it's a good thing we have to preach from a lectionary. I would never choose to preach from these passages. <laughs> these are tough and they're, they're hard lessons. And it, it, it's something that I think as, as I have thought about it over my own life, I have really struggled with these passages, and, and for many years I think I misinterpreted what they were saying to me. Well, we come to, to this part that is, is really very difficult, I think, for many of us. And that has to do with why Jesus says that it is necessary, that he must suffer, die, and then be resurrected. And one of the answers to that is that is God incarnate, it's necessary for him to experience the full range of, of human experience, including suffering and death. But I think it goes much more, uh, much deeper than that. I think that Jesus was pointing to the overarching purpose of being Messiah, and that is to reconcile us to God. Ultimately, his death upon the cross, in some way known only to God, did it. In some way, his death upon the cross reconciled us to God. 
the technical term for that is atonement. And there are many theories of the atonement. Perhaps the most common one is that Jesus died on the cross and he took all of our sins upon himself. And he died for our sins. And in that way, we're reconciled to God. But many of us really struggle with that theory of the atonement, uh, partly because we understand God to be a loving God. And how could a loving God want the death of his son for our sins? We really struggle with that. People try to answer it by saying God's ways are not man's ways. And that's possible. But I still think it's hard for us. It's important for you to know that there are a number of theories about the atonement. Uh, The one that I just described is pretty much characterized in our Eucharistic liturgy. So you'll hear images of that as we celebrate the Eucharist. But there are other theories as well. But I think it's important to keep in mind that they're theories. The way I approach the atonement is much the same way that I would approach the Eucharist. I don't understand it. I cannot adequately explain it. But I know that God is doing something in it. And I believe that that's what happens in the atonement. I believe that's what happened at the cross. God did something that reconciled us to God. So I think that is at the heart of what Jesus is saying when he says that it is necessary that he must die and then be resurrected. Now, up until this point, Jesus has been talking to his disciples, but apparently the crowds are fairly close by. So now he turns to the crowds, these these people who have been following him, and he begins to teach them about discipleship, about what does it really mean to follow me? And he says this, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I think most would agree that that's one of those hard sayings of Jesus. We're not accustomed to thinking about denying ourselves. In fact, in our culture, uh, if you look at our culture through the materialistic lens that we're mostly given, we might think that denying ourselves is doing away with some of these material things that we have so that we might do more with our money for other people or, or who knows what. But I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. I think what he was talking about is, who is it that you are? Are you a person who always thinks about self? Or are you a person who thinks about the other and the need of the other? I believe Jesus was inviting those who were following him to replicate his life. If you think about the life of Jesus and his ministry, his ministry was lived out for others always, not for himself. He never drew attention to himself. It was always about reaching out to others. So I think he was inviting those who wanted to follow him to replicate his life as much as they could, to be a reflection of the life of Christ. Of course, he talks also about taking up one's cross and following him. Uh, Anyone in the first century who heard those words would immediately uh, remember that the, the preferred method of execution for the Romans was crucifixion and that the cross beam would be carried across the back of the, of the person behind their neck 
as they would go to the place of crucifixion where the cross beam would be put up on the posts and they'd be nailed to it. The possibility of death to those who were following Jesus was very real. So I think they would have heard it that way. We don't necessarily feel that way, but there are Christians in the world today for which that is a very uh, possible reality, where they may indeed face death just because they're a follower of Jesus. Jesus goes on to tell them that they need to be willing to give of themselves in a way that they might never be able to imagine. I think that's what's inherent in denying self and in taking up the cross. Well, at first, these passages seem to be very hard sayings, but I believe that Jesus is calling us today to a life that is modeled after his life, to a life that when we come to the end of our life, it was a life well lived. And not because of what we accomplish in this life, but rather because of the kind of relationships we had. Because we had become selfless people as opposed to selfish people. Sometimes I think it's very hard for us to imagine uh, this kind of a life. You know, the standard is so high. I I have often thought that uh, I can never, I can never do what I believe Jesus is calling me to do. I've often felt that. It just, the standard just seems to be so high. I think sometimes we get a glimpse of how that can be lived out. When we, I was thinking back you know, over this weekend of 14 years ago when uh, the United States was attacked uh, in 9-11. There were people who denied themselves, who took up their cross, who knew they were going to die, who rushed toward the problem, who rushed into the towers, all those firemen who went all up those many, many steps to find somebody and carry them out. Time after time after time, there were people who gave of their lives. That, I think, is a clear example. There are so many others. But it's not just these great heroic acts. It's how we live our lives moment to moment. That's where it really counts. And I think that there are so many examples of how we can can be a selfless person, how we can be one who thinks of the other first, that can change the way the world is. Because we live in a world that seems to be all about acquiring, about getting more, and about making myself more important and bigger and more powerful. We are called to be selfless. We are called to deny self. We're really called to be like Jesus. Now, I know, knowing myself, that I will fail at this. And I know that you will fail at this as well, because we are human beings. We're imperfect. But I have great hope in the form of Peter. Peter, you'll recall, was one of the leaders of the disciples, certainly. He was always the first one to speak out and blurt out whatever was at the top of his head. Peter also was the leader of the nascent church in the first century. And Peter was the one who didn't deny himself, but denied Jesus three times. And the interesting thing is, in Mark's gospel, it says that he cursed and he swore an oath that he did not know who that man was. And then Peter 
is restored after Jesus is resurrected. And Jesus, at one point in one of the Gospels, says, Go tell Peter and the others that he is resurrected. There's always hope for us. We will fail. Uh, Perhaps the the most uh, important figure in the first century, Christianity, failed dramatically. But there was always an opportunity for him to come back. I am so thankful that we have that image of Peter. I am so thankful that we worship a God who understands us to be human and to and know that we will fail, but still does not give up on us. And so I would encourage you to try from moment to moment to understand how it is to lead this life that reflects Christ. And when you fail, pick yourself up, ask for forgiveness. And know that you are forgiven and that the God who loves you, that love is never ending. Amen.